I wish to address the issue of the love of God this morning. I realize that we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and we will get back there in a couple of weeks. In fact, our next chapter is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. But as I was contemplating the exposition of that particular chapter, I thought it would be wise to address the broader issue of the love of God to give us the necessary foundation to truly understand, as best we can, the matter of love. I might say that I believe God's love is one of the most least understood and most represented attribute of of God. Satan continues to use this perfection of God's character as a means to deceive the, the naive and the ignorant, as well as appease the rebellious and the arrogant who are in love with themselves. People today prefer a God of their own making and liking. They love a God of love because, in their mind, he is a God that winks at sin but would never send anyone to hell. People today prefer a God who has nothing to do with suffering and sorrow. They prefer a God who is not only tolerant of all forms of immorality and sexual perversions, but actually applauds them. Bottom line, they prefer a God who cannot be wholly righteous and just. So they reject the God of the Bible. They prefer a different God to one that they have fashioned for themselves, which frankly is a violation of the first commandment, a sin worthy of death. For example, I grow weary of hearing how we should love the LGBTQ community because God loves them and we're commanded to love our neighbor. Well, you know, I agree with that. That's biblical. God does love them despite their sinful perversions that violate his holy standard and are an assault upon his holy character. Yes, he loves the entirety of this fallen humanity in rebellion to God. He loves us enough to provide a way for we who are least holy to be reconciled to the one who was most holy through faith in his beloved son that he sent to pay the penalty for our sin and to take upon himself the wrath that we deserve. Now that's love. But people don't want to hear that. They don't believe in a God that is both loving and holy and must therefore punish sin. They want the former without the latter. They refuse to admit that because God is holy, His love and his wrath must coexist. In fact, all of his attributes exist simultaneously. They are all part of the essence of his very nature. They remain constant, perfect, without any ebb and flow, for God is unchanging. Now, admittedly, the doctrine of the love of God raises many questions that we cannot answer. I'll give you that up front. I'm not going to answer all of your questions because God doesn't answer them. 
As Paul says at the end of Romans 11, how unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. His ways are past finding out. And dear friends, as soon as you try to define him according to your standards and according to your values, you cease to be biblical. But please understand, beloved, God is to be worshipped, not fathomed. God is to be exalted, not explained. God is to be obeyed, not questioned. The just shall live by faith, right? Not by sight. D.A. Carson said it well, quote, God is less interested in answering our questions than in other things, securing our allegiance, establishing our faith, nurturing a desire for holiness. An important part of spiritual maturity is bound up with this obvious truth. God tells us a great deal about himself, but the mysteries of that remain are not going to be answered at a merely theoretical and intellectual level. We may probe a little around the edges using the minds God has given us to glimpse something of his glory, but ultimately the Christian will take refuge from questions about God, not in proud, omniscient explanations, but in Adoring worship, end quote. But how often do we hear people, and maybe you have done this, put God on trial? And you will hear them asking questions like, well, if God is love, why would he condemn people and send them to an eternal hell? If God is love, why doesn't he save everyone? Have you heard that before? Maybe you've asked that before. Well, let me give you the biblical answer. We simply don't know. Nor does God owe us an explanation. Beloved, he is God and we are not. We must keep that in mind. And ultimately we trust in his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy and his grace. Psalm 145 that we read earlier in verse 17 says, God is righteous in all his ways. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And as we will see next week, Lord willing, in part two of this study, The attributes of God must be understood as essential characteristics of his very nature. None of them can be isolated. I know this is a bit pedantic. You may think of it that way or a bit irrelevant and heavy and way too theological. But let me just get it out and then let you think about it. And we'll understand it more as we go along. Because these are the types of concepts that guard the truth of who God is in his word. We must understand, again, that all of God's attributes exist perfectly. They coexist. They exist simultaneously. And it's better for us to really use the word perfections than the word attributes. The term perfections is derived from a Greek term, eratos, which is translated excellencies in 1 Peter 2.29. There we, we, we read 
we proclaim the excellencies or the perfections of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So indeed, all of God's perfections, all of his attributes exist within him simultaneously, and they're essential to his nature. They are not parts or properties that comprise his essence. He does not merely possess holiness. He does not merely possess love. He does not merely possess goodness and justice. He is all those qualities eternally and fully and completely. He is therefore fully love. He is fully just. He is fully holy. He is fully good and so on. He is not subject to fits of passion as we are. He's not loving one woman and then he gets ticked off and now he's all wrathful. Moreover, each one of his perfections complement and even qualify all of the rest of his perfections. For example, his justice is a holy justice. His love is a righteous love. Now, I must confess, as soon as we (laughs) leave the shallows of our understanding of God... And I can tell by the look on some of your faces, we, we, we've left the shallows, right? As soon as we leave the shallows of our understanding of God and we start swimming in the great deep of, of his person and his works, we find that we are unable to even begin to plumb the depths of who he is. Because, dear friends, God is infinitely other. He is infinitely transcendent. He is beyond anything we can apprehend. However, we can apprehend what he has revealed about himself in his word. So you might say we cannot comprehend him fully, but we can apprehend him truly according to his word. And therefore, as finite creatures, whenever we think of certain attributes of God, like his love... Know this, the human passion of love that we experience will be vastly different than the divine perfection. It is impossible for us to perfectly know and emulate God. What are unchangeable perfections in him are fickle affections in us. So it is foolish to try to predicate all of our fallen attributes to God. Predicate simply means to assign something about ourselves to God as if it were true about him. And it's equally foolish to predicate God's infinite perfections to us. We simply cannot do that. Let me give you an example. Have you ever tried to explain something theologically to a two-year-old? If you haven't, you need to. You will find yourself at a loss of words. I guarantee it. For example, try having a conversation with a two- or three-year-old about love. It might go something like this. Tommy, do you love Mommy? Yes. Do you love Daddy? Yes. Do you love your friends in Sunday school as much as you love mommy? Yes. 
Do you love your big sister? Yes. Do you love your big sister when she takes away your toys? Yes. God says, love your enemies. Do you love your enemies? Yes. Do you love God? Yes. Do you love God even when daddy spanks you? Yes. You see where I'm going with this? <laughs> Do you still love daddy when he spanks you? Yes. You know, by this time, little Tommy's eyes are glazing over. I mean, all he wants to do is go torment the cat, you know. You, you, you get the idea? And we could go on and on with this just with the concept of love. And dear friends, my point with all of this is our lack of understanding of the infinite perfections of God, especially his love, are very similar to the type of comprehension of little Tommy in that conversation. But I will give you this. There are many things that God has revealed to us about this marvelous perfection. And so let's look at some of those here this morning. You thought I would never get to a Bible passage. Well, I fooled you. Go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. It's real simple. You don't even have to turn there. You may remember it. It simply says, God is love. There you have it. God is love. The apostle is not saying God is loving as if he were speaking about one of his many attributes. No, he says God is love, which carries the idea that his love is essential to his nature. In other words, if I can put it this way, God does not possess love. He is love. Love permeates and controls all of his perfections and coexists simultaneously with them. But that's not the end of the story when we think of God. For example, if we go to Isaiah chapter 6, remember that great text? In verse 3, we see the seraphim, the highest of the angels surrounding the throne, and, and they're in two opposite choirs. They're formed in a semicircle, and, and, and we are given the lyrics of their antiphonal praise. And there we read, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice they do not say love, love, love. They do not say good, 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 faithful, 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 just, 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 and on and on and on. They say holy, holy, holy. Indeed, he is the thrice holy God. And holiness, we know, is the all-encompassing attribute of God. It portrays his consummate perfections and his eternal glory, the infinite transcendent otherness of his person. Holiness stands alone as the defining characteristic of who he is. Holiness is really the summation of all of his attributes. So we see that God is not only love, but he is also holy. In fact, holiness is really the priority. But we notice in 1 John 1 and verse 5 that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. 
And we know biblically that light refers to, to holiness, truth, and, and his ineffable majesty. And it's for this reason you will recall, according to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, Paul says, he dwells in unapproachable light. Okay, so God is love, God is holy, God is also light. Moreover, according to Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, and Hebrews 12, 29, God is a consuming fire. Oh, people don't like to hear that one. In fact, in Hebrews 10, 31, we read it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then we could go on, Psalm 7, verse 11, we read that God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Wow, it's beginning to add a little different twist on this idea of who God really is. But we can go on. Guess what? According to John 4, 24, God is also spirit. Oh, my. We're beginning to feel like Tommy, right? Our eyes are beginning to glaze over. And I'm not going to go on with all of the other passages, but let me give you a sampling without the references. In Scripture, we read that God is also compassionate, eternal, faithful, trustworthy, good, gracious, impartial, just, merciful, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, patient, long-suffering, forbearing, righteous, self-existent, truthful, unchangeable, sovereign, and filled with loving kindness. So my point, dear friends, is when we say that God is love, we must understand that we have not said all there is to say about who God is. And thanks to theological liberalism and the newly invented God of contemporary evangelicalism that is more concerned about man's self-esteem than his sin, the one true God that must be defined by all of his perfections has been banished to an island of irrelevance and he has been replaced by a man-made God that does not exist. The worst kind of idolatry. Again, people today want a God that is loving but not wrathful. One who is tolerant but not holy. One that will wink at sin but never punish it. But it is fair to ask the hard questions. You know, if God is love, why would he allow such suffering in the world? If God is love, why doesn't he save everyone? If God is love, why would he devise a plan that would allow so many people to suffer in an eternal hell. And dear friends, these questions need to be answered honestly and biblically. We must not settle for easy answers that somehow conveniently fit into our little theological box of our understanding of here's, here's who God is. For example, we don't want to be like the universalists who believe that since God is love, everyone goes to heaven. There is no hell. Some universalists even teach that the devil and all of his fallen angels will be saved. Wow, that'd be something to share heaven with them. Of course, that's a contradiction to many passages in Scripture, especially the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 41, where he describes a sentencing of unbelievers. There he says, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for, here it is, the devil and his angels. We don't want to be like the annihilationists 
that believe that since God is love, believers go to heaven, but unbelievers are just annihilated. They just cease to exist. Many cults and many apostate denominations embrace this heresy. By the way, if that were true, the gospel and the need for evangelism would seem rather unimportant, wouldn't it? You know, hey, I'd love for you guys to believe in Christ, but, you know, hey, if you don't, the worst thing's going to happen. You're just going to die. You're gone. Just go out of existence. So who are the Titans playing this week? That's how people think. Well, of course, Scripture refutes these views. You realize Jesus said more about hell than anyone else in, recorded in, his, in, in Scripture? He described hell in Mark 9:48 as a place of unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And my, how I grieve for some of you that have rejected the gospel. You've never embraced Christ. And unless you do, this will be your eternal abode. Jesus called hell outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 25, 30, Luke 13, 28. In Revelation 14 and verse 11, he elaborates on the unrelenting suffering of hell. And he says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. In Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus says, unbelievers will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that refutes the annihilationists. But then there are also the hyper-Calvinists that err in the opposite direction. And in order to explain God's love, they will basically say God has no love whatsoever for the non-elect. After all, they will argue Psalm 711 says God is angry with the wicked every day. Proverbs 6, 6 through 19, 16 through 19 says that, in essence, he hates those who practice wickedness. Romans 9, 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. John 3, 36, the wrath of God abides upon the unbeliever and so forth. But I believe scripture refutes this view as well, as we will see. So with this Introduction, I wish to open the scriptures up to you regarding the love of God. I want us to have a balanced perspective, a biblical perspective based on what God has revealed. And we're going to do this under three headings. We're just going to look at the first one this morning for a few minutes. We're going to examine the unlimited extent of God's love. Secondly, the limited effects of God's love. And thirdly, the marvel of God's saving love. And while I pray that this will be helpful, you, you must understand, dear friends, it is so important to strike a balance between reason and mystery. It is so important to strike a balance between dogmatism and uncertainty. And if we're honest, God reveals enough clarity to assure us of his love, but not enough to explain the profound mysteries of his person and his plans to bring glory to himself. And we must learn to embrace that which we cannot know with humble adoration, while at the same time celebrate that which we can know. As Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but 
The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. So today we're going to probe a little around the edges of these inscrutable wonders, which, as you will see, will provide us all great assurance of of God's love. But in the end, we must yield to the reality that God's ways are not our ways and that he is beyond finding out. And I might also add, my, my great concern is that we will all see even more vividly the lamb in the midst of the throne. Because all of this ultimately points to Christ. And therefore, as we think of these things, it should move us all to just breathless adoration for the one who loved us even while we were yet sinners and gave himself for us. So let's look at the unlimited extent of God's love. Go to John 3 and verse 16. You're familiar with the text. You probably learned it when you were a child. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now some will say that this verse proves that God loves everybody in exactly the same way. Therefore, he would never condemn sinners nor sentence them to an eternal hell. But they fail to read on in verses 18 and 19, for example, that puts this whole verse in its proper context and balances God's love with his wrath. Beginning in verse 18, we read that he who believes in him is not judged. But notice what he says next. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. But what we learn from John 3 and verse 16 is that indeed God loves the world, and I believe that is a synonym for the human race. Now, the hyper-Calvinists will argue that the world is really a reference to the elect only, which, interestingly enough, is a position that John Calvin himself denied. He correctly interpreted this statement, claiming that, quote, the Father loves the human race. He went on to say two points are distinctly stated to us, namely that faith in Christ belongs or brings life to all and that Christ brought life because the Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. He went on to say in John 3.16, the evangelist has employed the universal term whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut away every excuse from unbelievers, such as also the import of the term world, which he formerly used. For though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all without exception to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than an entrance into life. Dear friends, it was God's love for this fallen world that motivated him to send his son to redeem this fallen race. And out of love, Christ came to seek and to save, not search and destroy. And Paul underscore, underscores the universal nature of God's love. In Titus 3 and verse 4, there we read, But when the kindness of God, our, our, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Folks, if God only loved the elect, 
God's invitation for sinners to come to salvation in Christ would be disingenuous, wouldn't it? The scripture is so clear. Salvation in Christ is freely and indiscriminately offered to everyone, all because of God's love for fallen humanity. Allow me to demonstrate this truth to you. Turn to Matthew 22. I'm going to look at some of these verses, and I regret to inform you this will be a very sketchy exposition, and I will fight the temptation to say too much, but hopefully you will get the gist of it. This, you will recall, is the the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus gives. It's a parable of of a wedding feast given by a king that was prepared for his son and his bride. And in verse 2 of Matthew 22, we read that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And we go on to read how he sends out his slaves to invite people to the wedding feast. Now, you must bear in mind that in that culture, to be personally invited by the king to a wedding feast, to a royal wedding, to receive that personal invitation would be an honor that would reduce you to just speechless delight. And certainly his listeners would have understood that. I mean, this is the ultimate invitation. No one would decline such an invitation. But notice the shocking reaction in verse 3. It says those who had been invited were unwilling to come. Amazing. But then notice the forbearance, the loving forbearance of the king. Verse 4, again, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But how did these invited guests respond to the king's loving forbearance? There's really two different groups that respond. One group responds in indifference. Notice verse 5, but they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And then you've got another group that responds in hostility in verse 6, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. I mean, folks, this is inconceivable. This is outrageous. This is high treason against the king, an act of, of rebellion, of murderous sedition. Now, the multitudes would have grasped this when Jesus spoke about this. And naturally, the only appropriate course of action on behalf of the king would be for him to punish such blatant insurrection. And so the forbearance turns to just retribution in verse 7. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Now, let me briefly explain The characters here in the parable, the king, of course, is Jehovah God. The king's son is the Lord Jesus Christ, the crown prince of glory. This is the son who deserves all of the honor and the praise who came to do his father's will. And the guests who were first invited, we're going to see there's going to be another group, but the guests that were first invited were his covenant people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, God's chosen people, those whom he had called out of the loins of Abraham in Genesis 12, and from which the Messiah would eventually be born. Now, the Jews listening to Jesus 
would have known that a wedding feast, whenever you talk about a wedding feast, theologically, they knew that it was a reference to messianic blessing. In fact, the Talmud, which was the primary source of of, of Jewish law and theology, the Talmud taught that the earthly kingdom, when it is inaugurated, would include the Messiah hosting a great banquet for his chosen people. So they understood what Jesus, where Jesus was going here. But again, these people had no desire to come and honor the king and his son. They wanted a Messiah who would free them from Rome, not free them from their bondage of sin. And the slaves that are described here, those who were sent to invite the guests, were the prophets, which would have included John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, other preachers, and so forth. And what did the Jews do with them? They killed them. Didn't want to have anything to do with anyone that spoke the truth. And historically, we know that the just retribution that's described here in Jesus' parable, that retribution against those invited guests that spurned his loving invitation was meted out in A.D. 70 when the Roman horde came in and utterly destroyed Jerusalem. They massacred virtually everyone in Palestine. They entered into Jerusalem. They slaughtered 1.1 million Jews. Josephus tells us that they killed everyone that could bear arms and all of the elderly, threw their bodies over the walls in enormous heaps, burned the temple, and 97,000 Jews were carried away into captivity to be slaves. Which, by the way, dear friends, is a microscopic foretaste of the judgment that is coming. My friends, God's forbearance has its limits. He will only allow his love to be snubbed for so long. He will only allow his love and his invitation to be mocked for so long. So with the rejectors who kindle the the king's wrath now punished, there's a new guest list. Notice in verse 8. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Dear friends, here Jesus predicted the amazing mystery of the gospel described in the Old Testament and the New Testament, namely the invitation of the gospel that would be extended to Gentiles. Aren't you glad that we were invited to the wedding feast? Romans 9 verse 25 where Paul quotes Hosea. He says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my chosen, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Likewise, Ephesians 3 and verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Great to know that we as Gentiles have been grafted into the root of Abrahamic blessing. 
So now in this parable, Jesus is really predicting what would later be called the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of the Jews? No, of all nations. Now, the gracious favor of the king is extended to a revised guest list that included anyone his emissaries could find. Isn't that interesting? And I love it in verse 10, whether they're evil or good, whether they're good or bad. Isn't that great? And according to verse 8, those who were invited were not worthy. Boy, talk about loving forbearance. You're going to tell me that God doesn't love even the wicked? He invites them not because they, 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 they were righteous, because many of them weren't. We all, none of us are. But they were uninvited now because they refused the invitation which, isn't it interesting, the invitation has nothing to do with personal merit, but everything to do with trusting in the merit of his son. The only dinner guests who will ever sit in the banquet hall of grace, dear friends, are those who have a personal faith in the provision that has been made to them through the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But I want you to notice, you have a wedding crasher that shows up in the parable. There's a presumptuous guest. Notice in verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes and said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And I love this statement. And he was speechless. In other words, he didn't know what to say. He he had no excuse. Now, I'm sure he's thinking to himself, as many people do, hey, what's this? I mean, what do you mean wedding clothes? I I thought there were no limitations here. What's this surprised dress code that you have to have? You see, obviously, the king in the parable had made provision for the proper attire. You see, no one off the streets of life could possibly be expected to own clothes befitting of such a glorious celebration. So the king had to provide this. But this man obviously thought that the garments that he had on, the garments that he chose, were acceptable. Friends, the the point with all of this is so important. And I hope you hear this. The only clothes that can be worn in the presence of a holy God are the robes of righteousness that have been imputed to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Supplied only by the king and his mercy and his grace. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Here's why. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Your friends, no man can defy the protocol of holiness by attending the celebration of grace, wearing the robes of self-righteousness. They will not do. The only acceptable garment that can please the king is the imputed righteousness of Christ, the robes of righteousness. All others will meet the same fate as the imposter in Jesus' parable. Notice verse 13. The king says, "...bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness." In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he says this, for many are called, but few are chosen. The 
term called klatoi. It could be translated invited. This, by the way, is speaking of the general call of the gospel that invites all who hear to come to faith in Christ as opposed to the effectual, irresistible calling that is used in other passages. So here is the horrific end of what happens to those who spurn the loving forbearance of God. Those who refuse his offer of mercy and grace to come to him on his terms. Indeed, many are called. In other words, the gospel of grace is an invitation given indiscriminately to all. Whosoever will may come, yet countless millions are unwilling to come. Therefore, by their own choice, they forfeit entrance into the kingdom of God. Not all who are called will turn out to be the chosen, among the chosen. And once again, we see the compatibility of sovereign election and human responsibility. Neither can be jettisoned to accommodate the other. Election never contravenes free will, nor is it ever accomplished irrespective of man's choice to repent and believe. But dear friends, what I want you to hear is that God is love, but he is also holy. His love is unlimited in extent. He loves even the most vile sinner, even the most self-righteous rebel, like the unrepentant, unrepentant Christ rejecter described in Mark 10. You remember that story? There you have this, this young man who refused to acknowledge his sin and follow Christ, even though Jesus invites him to do so. But then Jesus makes this amazing statement, quote, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. Forty-one times in the Old Testament we read of God's loving kindness. In Psalm 135, the refrain, refrain, his loving kindness is everlasting, is repeated 26 times. Psalm 86, verse 15, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. I think of when Jesus made his way into Jerusalem that final time to bear our sins in his body on the cross. He paused and he looked over the city and he lamented, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Matthew 23, Luke describes it this way in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. When Jesus appeared or approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. By the way, that term wept, eklosin in in Greek, means to bawl. It, it, It means to wail. What it's saying here is that Jesus sees the city and he bursts into sobbing as he laments over their rejection of their Messiah and all that would come upon them in time and eternity. The text says that he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. A term that speaks of what is required to have peace with God. What is required to have a right relationship between the creature and the creator. 
But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, referring to the siege warfare of the Romans, and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Isn't it amazing? Think about this. Jesus is making his way to the cross to be crucified on their behalf, on our behalf, and yet what does he do? He doesn't sob out loud on his behalf. He sobs for them and for us, those who would reject his saving grace. Oh, dear friends, what manner of love is this? But if he loved them, people will say, why didn't he save them? The answer is because he is holy. and Because all sin must be punished. Furthermore, I find it interesting, although God is utterly sovereign and able to accomplish whatever desire, whatever he desires, occasionally he expresses a wish for something that he has not sovereignly ordained to accomplish. Isn't that an amazing thought? Out of his great compassion, he sincerely desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. And he speaks through his prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33 and verse 11. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. But dear friends, we must understand that God has not decreed all that he desires. In fact, in many cases, he, he has decreed his own displeasure. And we see that most vividly in the sacrifice of his beloved son. But rather than trying to explain the sovereign purposes of God and to bring glory to himself and why he, he, he saves some but not, not all, what I want us to focus on here is the love of God for each of us. I think of 1 John 4, beginning in verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the satisfaction, the placation, the appeasement of the wrath of God that should have come upon us. In Ephesians 2 and verse 4 and following, we read, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Yes, God loves the world consistent with John three sixteen. But dear friends, his love coexists with his holiness and wrath. That's why in John 3 and verse 36 we read, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. My, there's the love that's offered. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Oh, dear friend, if you've never seen this love of God extended to you, if you've never seen what you deserve versus what is being offered to you, if you've never seen the horror of your sin and the inevitability of an eternal hell that awaits you, 
I hope that you will see it today and repent and believe in Christ. Come to the wedding feast. You know, we all long to be loved, don't we? If we're honest, of course we do. I was thinking about this when I was meditating upon these passages. I remember the first time Nancy told me she loved me. I'll get all choked up here if I'm not careful. You may remember that as well. You know what it's like for somebody to tell you that, that they love you? I remember when she told me that, I, my heart melted. And it's been in a puddle ever since. Sometimes out of the blue, my little four-year-old granddaughter will say, Papa, I love you. Oh, the whole world stops, right? We, we know what that's like. Dear friends, I'm here to tell you that the creator of the universe loves you. And will you spurn so great a love? The one whose law we have broken countless times, the one who came and bore our sins in his body, will we spurn that kind of love? I close with the words of what is called a white spiritual. We've heard a lot of Negro spirituals. This is a white spiritual. It was first published in 1811. It was, it was sung in the American South here in this er- area and it was published during the Second Great Awakening where great reformed Bible expositors exposited the word and the spirit of God decided to do his thing. And many were saved. I'm not going to give you all of the lyrics of this great folk hymn, but you may remember some of it. By the way, my, my favorite rendition of this is Fernando Ortega, if you're familiar with him. What wondrous love is this, O oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul? To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, when we contemplate your love, we are overwhelmed by it and we give you praise for it. And I pray especially this morning for those who may be within the sound of my voice that know nothing experientially of what it is to be loved by you in a saving way. So I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will bring overwhelming conviction to their heart. I know there are some here that have never trusted in Christ as Savior. And I pray that today will be the day that they bow before you, acknowledge their sin, and cry out for the mercy that you long to give them. And for those of us who know and love you, Lord, may we love you better. May we love you more because we know our love is so pathetic at times. So we give you praise for your word that reveals this great perfection to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. 
You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.